We invite you to turn to Psalm 34 as we um, continue our series in the Psalms. We come to a God who seeks to rescue, who has rescued his guy, his man, David. We come to David, a particular time, we're told, you know, on, on, on occasion, the Psalms will kind of give you one-liners. There'll be these kind of opening little statements at the beginning. They have what we call a heading, or if you want to be a really nerdy, a superscription. And um, sometimes they're just of David. Sometimes like this, they're a little more in detail. This heading says, of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. We'll get to that and all the details of what that is in a few seconds. But before we do, let's read the word of God, the word of David, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 34. Let's listen and receive from the mouth of God these words. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. And your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted And saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon the hearing and the believing. And the preaching of his word. Almighty God, we have many afflictions. We are weak and wounded, thick and sore. We pray that you would lift us up, that you would, through David, show us your goodness, that you would, through David, teach us your ways. We pray this in the name of the good one, the perfect one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this psalm has a heading, a very unique heading. And uh, this heading is all about that story 
in 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 to verse 15. Remember the story? I'll remind you of it. David, he's being hunted. He's being haunted. He's being hated by King Saul. And David, he's been annihilating the Philistine troops. He's been attacking them many more than just Goliath. And then he shows up in the Philistine headquarters of Gath with the sword of Goliath. It's like a steer deciding to walk into a meat packing plant. Not the best place to go. But he goes. He goes right in there. And what does he do? Well, he pretends to be insane. He pretends to be mad. He starts to uh, crayon on all the walls. He starts to slobber everywhere. Who knows what he did? He, 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 maybe he gave wild stares to, to the Philistine guards. He, he, he goes crazy. And we read that story when it, when it uh, pops up in 1 Samuel. We're tempted to think, that's a very clever ruse, David. You're being very smart. You're very cunning. Nobody expects an insane person to be any threat. We read it here in Psalm 34. And David never says, I was really clever, therefore I was redeemed. I was saved because I was smart. Instead, it's all about God. It shows you, it takes you behind the curtain, the Psalm does, takes you behind the curtain of that one scene, and it says, This was all about God. It's all about God's deliverance. It's not a slick move. It was. Verse 6, this poor fellow cried and the Lord heard. And the poor fellow's David. He cried out. This is not an insane, but a sane meditation on the deliverance of God. Now, even uh, the ESV notes here, if you uh, look at the little footnote after the number 34, at least in my version, that this is an acrostic psalm, which means that uh, almost always each verse begins with the Next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it'd be like if you had a poem in first line A, second line B, third line C, and so on and so forth. It's an acrostic. Now, why is it an acrostic? I have no idea. One commentator suggests, it's as good as any suggestion I find, David was so moved by his escape that he felt the need of an artificial convention to discipline his feelings, or to put it in plain English, David needed a way to put his thoughts in order, and this is as good a way as any. He needed a form. It's often helpful if you're writing something to say, I'm only going to write 100 words today. Try that. Try just writing a very short amount of words today. It's actually a lot harder. It takes a lot more discipline. You'll find you write better if you do that. And so David says, I'm going to write an acronym. I'm going to write, and first line begins with A, second line with B, and that's going to help me shape my praise to God. And if you want to have a shape for this evening, if you want to have an outline for this evening, I think there are really two major parts to the psalm. The first 10 verses are all about David uh, testifying or bearing witness. And the second uh, 11 to 22, second 11 verses, we're all about David instructing us. Or to put it a different way, first half's about who God is. David telling us who God is. And the second half's about what are God's ways. Because of who God is, what are his ways like? Let's look at the first part. Let's look at the first part first. That seems wise and sensible. Testimony. Bearing witness. What is this God like? 
Well, look at verse 2. David begins by boasting. This God is worthy of boasting about. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And David says that this boasting should not be a one-time deal. It's not simply when you get the check in the mail or when the stocks kind of cash out or when you get that great health report from the doctor. It's not just when you get the cool Lego. Verse 1, all times, continually, in my mouth. All the time, constant, continual boasting. And moreover, this is an encouraging boast. It's not a prideful boast. Again, verse 2, let the humble hear and be glad that when you boast in this God, other people should hear and be encouraged by it. And then lastly, verse 3, David says, you need to be greedy for God. Greedy for God's glory. Greedy to boast in the Lord. That's what he says. Magnify the Lord. He burst out. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. And those are Bible words that we kind of just say and we sing. They're in our hymns. But think about what they actually mean. Multiply your delight in God. Or you know what a magnifying glass does? You take it and you can see more. You can see deeper into the details of some small ant or some small item. Some of us need magnifying glasses even to read. I call them my glasses. You know, magnify the words on the page. And David is saying, take the magnifying glass of your heart. Take the magnifying glass of your soul and turn it on God. Turn it on God. Magnify the Lord with me. You see what David wants here? He wants a fellowship of praise. He wants a company all about praising God. He wants a group around him to praise God. Praise can never be solitary. You know that? You understand that. I mean, if if you like somebody, you're going to tell people about them. If you like like somebody, you're going to tell people about them. If you love someone, you're going to tell others about them. That's the nature of things. Praise cannot be alone. It's greedy. It always wants to multiply and keep going over and over and over. It's always infectious. Once upon a time in the American colonies, some of y'all may know the name John Witherspoon. He was teaching at the College of New Jersey, what we call today Princeton University. And uh, his neighbor runs one day, ran into his office. And Witherspoon was like, why are you here? You're usually, you know, the neighbor. You're not at the college. He says, Dr. Witherspoon, you need to join me and give thanks to God. He just saved my life. And Witherspoon was like, what did he do? Well, I was driving. The horse spooked. The buggy was smashed to bits in the side of the road. We were careening, but I escaped unharmed. I was delivered. I was delivered from death. You must join me in giving thanks for praise. Praise has a conspiracy for more praise. Praise demands more praise. David boasts in God. He praises God. He does it all the time. 
He does it to encourage other people. And he wants it to keep happening more and more and more. We speak about our praise and our worship of God. I wonder if those categories, if those qualities come into play. I wonder if when you sing, you're thinking about any of this stuff. Or so often like me, you're thinking about how the song makes you feel, how you like the, the words, or it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good traditional song, or it's a good contemporary song, or, it's, or whatever the case is. It's all about you and less about your Lord. That's the reality that we all tend to face. But notice that David does not stop there. He then moves on the next three verses, verse four to verse six. He, he remembers what God did. First, he says, I boast in you. Okay, well, what are you boasting about? What specific thing has God done? And then he tells you, verse four, I sought the Lord. Uh, at some point in time, when I was back in Gath in Philistine headquarters, I sought the Lord and he answered me. Verse six. I was the poor man. I cried out. The Lord heard me and saved me. You see the link here. David doesn't just start praising God randomly. He doesn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, God, you're just so great. I don't know why you're great, but you're just so great. No, 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 no. He has specific praise. He has particular things he wants to delight in God about. And that's the way praise works. The deliverance in the past is the fuel for the praise in the present. And look at the look at this. Look at verse four. I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. It's very simple, isn't it? I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me. I cried. Verse six. He heard me. He saved me. It's not rocket science. And more, moreover, verse 5 says, it's not just me. Many other people, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. David boasts in God. David remembers what God's done in his life. And then thirdly, he begins to infer. He begins to draw some implications for all of us out of his particular deliverance. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. The first thing he, he says is, do you want to know who this God is? My God, this God protects his people. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. God encamps around them. Now, in fact, this is a, uh, to be a little technical, grammatical, this is a participle. That is, God continues to camp around. The angel of the Lord continues to encamp around those who fear him. It's not a one-off camp. It's not that God goes on a camp out with you once a year or twice at Christmas and Easter. God doesn't camp out with you. He's always camping with you. He's always there with you in all your travels, in all the pilgrim way of God's pilgrim people. God is with us. He's with you. You always have the Lord camping with you. Not just protection, but second, verse 9 and verse 10, you have actual provision from God. 
He makes this, this classic statement in verse 10, the young lions suffer a want and hunger. That means even the young lions, which are, as we mentioned this morning with Judah, very strong and they can be very sleek. They can be very mighty. Even the young lions get hungry. Even the king of the jungle gets hungry. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or to put it differently, whatever is good for you, God will make sure you have it. Whatever is good for you, God will make sure that you have it. He won't just protect you from evil. He will actually provide for your good. He'll provide what you need. It's very similar to what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. You can be very assured that your father is not going to give you a scorpion. If you ask him for, for a fish, he's not going to play a game with you. He's not going to trick you. He will give you good things. He will give you good things. This is why the very, one of the very classic petitions that Jesus teaches us to ask from our Father is, give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us. Because he's the kind of God who does that. He provides. Now, it's interesting just to note, as we come to the end of this first section, what is David talk to us about? What did he witness to us about? He's told us, praise God. Praise God. And then where does he end? In verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He ends in assurance. Praise, deliverance, assurance. You see the, the, the trajectory here, the pattern here? What starts with praising God ends up with assurance that I am protected and cared for. Do you doubt that? I mean, if you're a Christian, do you doubt that you're a Christian? Do you doubt that God's looking out for you? Do you wonder at sometimes, is he actually for me? Is he totally providing for me? Because it doesn't feel like he's providing for me. Now, it's true that, yes, God should be praised just because he's God. You, you should just praise God because he is, that, that is a sufficient reason to praise God. Because he's God, he should be praised. But the beauty of worshiping God, the beauty of singing to God, the beauty of loving God is that so often that boils over, that uh, spills over into the buckets of your need, the buckets of your doubt. And it assures you that you have a God who protects you. When you praise God, Sincerely, from the heart, in spirit and truth, when you worship him, what's going to happen? God won't leave you in the lurch. He won't say, yeah, keep on praising me. That's it. Belt it out. Come on. I don't care if you haven't had any water. Keep on singing. No, he's not like that. The beautiful thing about it is that when you come and worship him, he gives you assurance. He gives you protection. He says, yes. And don't you see how I still care for you now? You look back at that path deliverance and God says, yes, I assure you. And yet there is a flip side. There's the, the dark side of the moon. Maybe if you're doubting, maybe if you find your, your way is not very Christian recently, maybe if you find you don't like praising God, well, maybe that's because you're not really caring for his protection. You don't want him to protect you. You don't want him to provide for you. 
It may be the case that if you're lacking assurance, if you're doubting who you are in Jesus, it may be that you've not been praising him. I've been praising your God. So that's the first half, second half of the psalm. David says, okay, this is our God. This is our God we should praise. This is our God who protects us. So what are his ways like? How can we follow him? He began to teach, in other words. He, he turned to the, into a professor. He said, okay, this is what happened to me. This is who my God is. What does that mean for all of us? He described it in kind of two ways. Verse 11 to verse 14, he says, this is the way of the righteous. And then he says, the way of the Lord in the last uh, seven verses, the way of the righteous and the way of the Lord. He begins at verse 11 with an invitation to the way of the Christian, the way of the righteous. He says, come children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Okay, what's the fear of the Lord? Here we go. Here's a formula. You want a Christian formula? Here's a Christian formula. Here's the way to be a Christian, verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is how the faithful Christian should live. Three things. Control of your speech. Transform direction of your life. Your passion for peace. It's a great starter kit for the fear of the Lord. It's not everything. Of course, not everything. But if you have to boil down the Christian's life, how you talk, what direction you're going in, and your passion, your zeal for peace. It's the way Peter talks about it, by the way. This is not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing. It's the way Peter talks. He actually uses Psalm 34 in his first letter. He speaks in chapter 2 about the relationships the Christian has. And the key statement in that second chapter and spilling over into chapter 3 is submission. Be submissive. Be submissive to your masters. Be submissive to uh, human government, to the emperor. Be submissive to in, in, in your home. And he sums it up in chapter 3, verse 8, by quoting Psalm 34, verse 12 and following. He says, this is the way of the Christian. This is the way of the Christian. And then, having discussed the way of the Christian, David moves to the way of the Lord. He moves to the way of the Lord, verse 15. Because you might ask, why should I be someone who had integrity in my speech? Why should I maintain a godly life? What's in it, you know, for me? Why should I live at peace in relation to other people? What are the incentives? What are the benefits I get from that? Well, in this psalm, you kind of break it down that way. David says, look, you, you want to know the benefits for living like a Christian? Listen to what God does. Listen to the way of the Lord. Listen to how God works. And that'll give you all the incentives you need. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord's near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. David starts here with the anatomy of God. Here's the anatomy of your God. He has eyes. 
He has ears. He has a face, not literally, but he hears the cry of his people. Why does David go and start using anatomy language for God? God's eyes, God's ears, God's hearing, God's face. It's David's way of saying God doesn't stop paying attention to you. His eyes are looking out. They rove over all the earth. There's nothing that you do or people do to you or you do to people that escapes his notice. His ears are open. They hear every prayer. They hear every word. They hear every muttered word. They know every thought. His ears are there. His face is opposed to the wicked, but for the righteous. The point is that God's entire being God's entire person is for your good. It's for his people's welfare. And then, of course, this this classic statement in verses 18 to 20, the Lord's near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the affliction of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The point is that God's close. Not just that he cares about you, It's one thing if he hears and cares, but he can't get close to you. No, no, this is a God who gets close to you. He is near. He comes to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. And the the sense here in this brokenheartedness and this crushedness, the sense is that you've had to endure a lot. You've had to go through a lot in your life. There's no cover-up. You say, I'm the crushed one. I don't think if uh, I were to take a poll of you, even this evening, and ask how many of you think Christians are crushed, I don't think a lot of us would raise our hands and say, yes, that, that is what I look for as a Christian. I don't think if I were to say, how many of you think the ideal Christian is a broken heart? A broken hearted person, a sad person. I don't think many of us would say, yes, that's the ideal Christian. But what we have here is actually... The only person that God is near to is the brokenhearted. The one the Lord saves is the crushed in spirit. It's realistic, in other words. That's verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. God does not, David does not say, you know, if you become a Christian, if you follow the way of the righteous, you try to keep your tongue from speaking evil, you seek peace. If you aim in a godly direction, you're going to have a great life. He says, no, many are the afflictions. There's a lot of problems you're going to have when you become a Christian. A lot of problems you're going to have. But, but, then he says, God knows them all, all. You see the parallel here? Many are the afflictions, but God has them all. You may have many afflictions, but God can save all, all. No matter how many afflictions you have, God is there for them all. No matter how many bones you have. There's some some number of hundreds of bones. People who who are nurses and doctors can tell me how many afterwards. So many bones we have in our body. And yet, not one of them is broken. All your bones. And then finally, verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The point here is, friends, that the Lord preserves his people no matter what you face. No matter what you face. 
It's kind of like what Christ says to his disciples in Luke 21. Luke 21, 16, and then Luke 21, 18. He says to his disciples, you're going to be betrayed by people close to you. They'll put you to death. They'll kill you. And then he says in verse 18, but not one hair of your head will perish. That doesn't make sense. How can they kill you? And yet not one hair of your head will perish. It only makes sense when you view it from God's angle. Yes, you will die, but you won't perish. That is God's hand will always be on you. He will deliver you. Though you die, you will live. That's a paradox of the Christian life. And then David concludes here. He says, look, let's look to the end. Let's look to the end point. Let's look to heaven and hell. Let's look to where things are going to end up at the very end of all time. Verse 21 and verse 22. The last day of the wicked, the last day of the righteous. Those who hate the righteous, the wicked, they will be condemned. They will be slain by affliction. They will die. And yet the Lord will redeem the life of his servants. In other words, what's the opposite of condemnation, justification? He will justify you. Do you know that as a Christian on the last day, you will be before Jesus Christ and he will say, you're mine. You may not have known it at the time, may not have felt it all your days. You may have doubted, you may have struggled, you may have had many afflictions. But the last he will say, you are mine. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There was once a guy named Reynolds. He was an Englishman. He was from Bristol, England. He had a friend who said, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you the gift of a portrait. Go and sit, and this guy's going to paint your portrait. It's going to be awesome. Back in those days, of course, they didn't have photographs. They just had painting, so it was a really good thing. Very nice. And so the, the painter asked him, okay, Reynolds, what do you want to be painted with? What's the background you want in your painting? You know, you want like a nice summer day. You want a winter. What do you want? You want some friends with you, your family? I, I love what he says. It's what I would have said. Sitting among books. Which books? The painter asked. The Bible. Open at which part? The fifth chapter of Romans the first verse to be legible. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just the, the 2.0 version, the update of Psalm 34, 22, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that verse legible in your life? I mean, if your life was to be painted up, and people were to say, what's in the background? What's, what's in the background of your life? What's the main thing in your life? Is that verse legible? The justification of the Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing else in the world that anchors your soul like that. So we have Psalm 34. We have the boasting the praise of God, the testimony to God. We have the instruction, the way of the righteous, the way of the Lord. It's a dramatic, uh, in one sense, setting. David's insane, and yet the reality is it is the most sane description of God and the Christian 
one of the most out there you can find. Um, it should be life-changing to us, and yet I suppose the problem is that it's not. So maybe to help you, to encourage you, let me tell you about one last little brief story about a guy named John Finnick. John Finnick was, was born in 1718. He was the youngest of seven kids. He was born into a staunch Church of England family, an Anglican home. He, he rebelled in his early teens. He ran wild. But when he was about 17 or 18 or so, he came under intense agony of soul. Two years he was miserable about his soul. Two years he was in anguish. He was afraid. He was doubting. He was worried. And then when he turned 19, in his 19th year, the sun broke through. He says, it was at an ordinary church service that the great illumination occurred through the application of the healing word. On Sunday, September 6, 1737, the psalm for the day was the 34th. Great are the troubles of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all, and they that put their trust in him shall not be destitute. In the old King James. John Finnick says, no sooner had I finished singing than the burden was removed from my soul. An ordinary church service, kind of like an ordinary Sunday night here at the Rock, 34th Psalm, glad deliverance, worthy of praise, worthy even of boasting to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are worthy of all that we have. You are worthy of our heart, our soul, our life, our strength. You are the God who gives much more than we deserve. You are the one who protects and provides. You are the God who calls us to live in your way and to follow the way of the righteous. We pray you would strengthen us this week to boast in you, to be assured of your power to be near to the brokenhearted. So we would look to you and see our ultimate justification before your throne, by your grace, for your glory and our good. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.